Hi, I'm Meg Linehan. Welcome back to Full Time with Meg Linehan for another episode. There is so much happening in women's soccer, but I wanted to spend some time today breaking down what's happening in Utah, as this is a pretty major story and one that I've been working on with my coworkers at the Athletic Soccer Vertical for basically the past week, though this story really has been brewing for quite some time. Next week, we'll have a lot to discuss with the return of both the NWSL and FAWSL, but first let's get into some of the big news of the past week since there was quite a bit of it. On Sunday, Lyon won yet another Champions League title, their fifth in a row and seventh overall with a 3-1 victory over Wolfsburg. Lesomer, Kumagai, and Gunastarda had the goals for Lyon and Pop for Wolfsburg. Now also in Wolfsburg news, Pernell Harder has made the leap from the Frauen Bundesliga to the FAWSL, signing with Chelsea in one of the season's biggest deals and for what is reportedly the new record for transfer fees in the women's game. The Guardian put the number around £300,000, or for us here in the States, just over $400,000. Now, with that news, as well as recent signings from the U.S. Women's National Team by England sides, there's probably some interest on your part on how to actually watch these games here in the United States. NBC Sports has signed a new deal to broadcast FAWSL matches here in America with a deal brokered by Atalanta Media, which is a new company that is focused solely on women's soccer. Now, over the course of the season, NBC Sports will air 50 FAWSL matches across NBC Sports Network, the NBC Sports app, and NBCSports.com. The ones that you can watch this upcoming weekend are Aston Villa versus Manchester City on Saturday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time, live on the NBC Sports app and NBCSports.com. Arsenal vs. Reading on Sunday at 7.30 o'clock in the morning Eastern Time, live on NBC Sports app and NBCSports.com. The other big one, of course, is Manchester United vs. Chelsea at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time. That's live on the NBC Sports app and NBCSports.com, but the game will also be broadcast on NBCSN starting at noon if you'd rather wait for television. So the fun part is that you can watch some soccer over breakfast and, if you're me, coffee, uh, and then follow it up with the NWSL Fall Series. The league released a partial schedule for the first three weeks of games, including more information on their broadcast plans. Uh, please, if you would like to ask me questions, go to the league website first. There is an FAQ there. I promise you it's probably going to answer the question, though I know the setup is a little more confusing than usual. Um, the only game of this particular weekend is on Saturday, September 5th, between Sky Blue FC and the Washington Spirit. They'll be playing at Segra Field at 1 o'clock Eastern Time, and that match will be on Big CBS and also streaming on CBS All Access if you're here in the United States. If you're an international viewer, as always, you are watching on Twitch. Okay, so to help me explain just what is happening in Utah right now, I'm joined by Chris Kamrani and Paul Tenorio of the Athletic Soccer Vertical. I've been working with both of them again around the clock over the past week to report out the story. And if you've missed any of the stories so far, all of those links are in the episode description for you. But they're joining me today just so that we can kind of discuss what we've learned over the past week and also over the past couple of years, really. Okay, so now that we're good on the news front and the tune-in front for both NWSL and FAWSL, I will be right back with Chris and Paul after this short break. So let's, let's attempt to have a short version of this story, of how we actually got to where we're at right at the moment. It starts 
with an MLS game not being played. Paul, how about you fill us in on the first chunk of this, maybe just in terms of what happened with RSL and Deloy Hansen going on the radio to give his reaction to that. Well, Wednesday night was a pretty historic day in American sports. Um, It started in Milwaukee. Well, it started in Orlando in the locker room uh, of the Milwaukee Bucks when they decided to protest their game in the NBA bubble. And from there, it spread across sports to the WNBA and to Major League Soccer as players from in professional sports decided not to take the court or the field that night and play games. And every MLS game, the decision was made not to play outside of one game, which was the first to kick off. Um, the Orlando game kicked off, uh, Orlando against Nashville. But every other game after that, the players opted not to play. And one of those games was Real Salt Lake. And what was a little bit unique about that game was there were fans in the stands that day. Salt Lake is one of the teams that has allowed fans back into the stadium during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and, and that decision to choose not to play um, and to stand up and push for social just, justice and change in um, the way I think especially some of these leagues are approaching trying to create change, um, it led to reaction from Deloy Hansen the next day on radio where he came out and basically said he took personal offense to the decision of the players not to play. Uh, I thought that was maybe the most telling comment that Deloitte Hansen made. Um, but he also said along the lines of, you know, this protest was like, you know, getting stabbed and having to take the knife out and that he didn't feel, he felt as though it took the wind out of his sails to invest in the team and that Real Salt Lake players were more interested and cared more about a national issue than they did about the local community. And those comments, I think, were in a way, the, it wasn't the beginning of this story, but certainly is what took this story from a, um, a potential piece into prompting people to say that this is enough and we're going to talk about the issues that have been going on at Real Salt Lake for a very long time. Right. I mean, I remember being in group discussions with our coworkers, right, trying to figure out the way into a, a Salt Lake story. Chris, you know, you're kind of a recent addition to the soccer staff. And then uh, you you walk in as a person who is in Utah, who has covered this team before. Can you maybe fill folks in a little bit on your background in covering this team and where you're coming to the story from? Yeah. So uh, before I joined the athletic, I worked at the Salt Lake Tribune for almost seven years and covered RSL the Monarchs and Royals um, under that umbrella, I think only one year, but primarily my beat was going to be RSL when I was hired at the Tribune. And for about four and a half years, that's what I did. And um, as somebody who was around the team a lot, um, doing really crucial uh, benchmark points uh, during Deloitte Hansen's ownership, it was fascinating to see what um, Deloitte did in terms of his ownership style like he was very hands-on he was very um, aggressive he was pretty bombastic in, in making things um, known that he wanted accomplished he would say things like 
uh, one of the first interviews that I ever had with him was right before MLS Cup in 2013. And I, I met him in his penthouse, um, uh, uh, not apartment, uh, office at the top of this big uh, building in downtown Salt Lake City. And he told me, like, he's like, I want my own Robbie Keane because that was when Robbie Keane was the best player in the league. And, you know, for an owner to say that to a reporter, like the week of MLS Cup, it's just, it's, you don't get that kind of interaction with owners that often. And, and, and Deloitte was, was really a front facing owner in MLS. Uh, I think at times that, that was a positive locally, but too many times he was putting his foot in his mouth. We saw him get, um, you know, fined by the league a lot, especially during the, the potential lockout a few years ago. And, uh, yeah, I, I was just around RSL a lot, and I had some interactions with uh, Deloitte and, and a lot of folks around RSL over the years. And, and now that I'm at The Athletic, um, I was you know able to parlay a lot of those experiences that I had um, into our reporting. Right. Okay, so let's actually get into, we, we now have two different stories up. The first one I was considerably less involved in, so I want to turn to the two of you to walk through some of this reporting in terms of the first one was very specifically, I think, about Delaware Hansen as an owner and about previous comments and behavior that he had made. And Paul, I mean, I think the story was very powerful because there was a person willing to go on the record, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we get to the second story, but um, let's let's maybe dig in a little bit to the story about Deloitte Hansen because that also changed the course of events from, we almost have like these distinct time periods of we have the game not being played, the radio interview, the first statements from NWSL and from MLS, and then our report, and then <laughs> immediate follow-up statements. So let's walk through that first story, Paul, if you want to kick us off here. Yeah, well, you know, I think it's important to note that some of these stories about Deloitte Hansen had kind of been floating around the soccer world, the American soccer world for some time. And the difficulty is in trying to find people who are willing to put their name on a story like this, because there is fear of retribution and fear of the impact that it can have on your career. And when you read the story that we ended up writing about Deloitte Hansen and you see the things that he said and did to people, you know, we felt it was important to have at least one person's name on this piece. And um, it, it happened with Andy Williams, who I think, you know, stepped forward and was the brave person here to be willing to go on the record um, and to tell the stories he did, some of which were directly involving him and probably traumatic in a way. Um, to experience that, those to hear an owner use the N word, to hear to be standing next to an owner and have him say to a, a black MLS player, you know, when are we going to lynch this guy? Um, I mean, those are inc incredible things for anyone to say out loud. Um, but the owner of an MLS team, especially um, with you know a, a black employee um, and and or to a, another player, and so. As we were reporting this piece, um, once Andy Williams spoke on the record, that allowed us to go to other people and say, "Listen, we, you know, we have someone on the record. Someone on the record. They said you were there. Would you be willing to corroborate this story, or are you willing to go on the record?" And I think it made it a little bit easier for people to talk and 
to understand that there is this potential here for change um, and for something to come about from a from this story. Um, and that that turned this I mean that basically accelerated the timeline for this piece because we, you know there was a lot of a lot of knowledge you know institutional knowledge at the athletic with myself and Sam Stayskol and Chris um, and Meg you as well coming in from the NWSL side and the things you had heard and then we were able to kind of convert that pretty quickly into a powerful story. Yeah, I think it's really interesting just because you know the other thing about the athletic soccer is that we're all coming from these different backgrounds, right? Like I, I worked directly with the league. I was around when Utah Royals came into the league. Like that was <laughs> actually my coworker at the time was on vacation. So I was handling an entire like shutting down of FC Kansas City into Utah Royals being announced on my own. So there was there was a lot happening, but also you do, you know, you hear things and you have to walk that line of what do I know versus what have I heard versus what can I report out? And that's, I think, kind of one of the tougher things to to navigate in terms of what can I use responsibly and, and how. All right, so we've got story number one. Then, Chris, maybe if you can walk us through the immediate fallout maybe of some of, of story number one. We have investigations immediately happen with MLS and NWSL just the first part of that investigation because it has even changed scope since the original announcement. Yeah. So the investigations were announced by both leagues and it was announced on Friday that Deloitte was going to take a leave of absence from the club. And there's so many things going on at one time because we have our story runs Thursday night. Deloitte takes a leave of absence on Friday. RSL travels to Portland to, to play in a game. I mean, I think so many of us were wondering, you know, is RSL even going to play and under what circumstances? Uh, but, you know, with the COVID-19 pandemic, teams are traveling day of now. So RSL got on a flight and flew to Portland and played, um, you know, one of the, the craziest games of this crazy 2020 season, scoring two goals in the last five minutes of stoppage time to, to earn a, a draw, 4-4 draw at Providence Park. And then on Sunday, uh, the league puts out that Deloitte Hansen has opted to put Utah soccer up for sale, meaning RSL, Utah Royals FC, Real Monarchs, and all of the club's facilities, meaning Rio Tinto Stadium, where the Royals and RSL play, and the Zions Bank Harriman facility campus, which is about 40 minutes south of Salt Lake, that houses uh, you know, Real Monarchs, where they play in USL and RSL's academy and charter school. So this went from, you know, like Paul was saying, someone brave like Andy Williams being able to step into the spotlight and and be unafraid of, of retribution that will certainly come his way to, you know, one of the most powerful people in Utah and definitely one of the more powerful owners in MLS and NWSL putting his stakes up for sale. Yeah, I almost kind of want to sidetrack, and this is this is not something that necessarily got covered with the reporting. I mean, it gets mentioned a lot, but in terms of NWSL, right, the reason why people are going to know Zion's Bank Stadium is because we just had NWSL Challenge Cup there, right? So there are, I think before we get into the, the follow-up reporting, I do kind of want to sidetrack for a second and just maybe discuss what Deloitte's role is in, in both of these leagues and, 
you know, I can speak to the NWSL side because obviously Deloitte has some of the deepest pockets in the league, right? And he also, I do think it's worth bringing in the context of the fact that he came into the league at a time where they needed someone to buy in and desperately. You have FC Kansas City folding in 2017. It comes out after the fact that the the team sold like the current owner of or the final owner of FC Kansas City had his own kind of terrible sexual harassment kind of story of his own in terms of talking about players and private emails that, you know, eventually got out and, and players knew about like there was questionable behavior happening in FC Kansas City, but it was also a financial thing. And they needed someone with facilities like in Salt Lake, and they needed someone who was ready to buy in and and ready to spend some money. And they did, NWSL found that via Deloitte Hansen. And he comes into this league, and I've been watching a lot of old videos <laughs> from 2017 into 2018 as they're announcing, you know, okay, all of these players are coming over to Utah. Um, they they got the rights to those players via FC Kansas City, but there wasn't necessarily a guarantee that they would actually sign with the team. And the the locker room reveal, right? And all of the social media around, like, well, Deloitte Hansen is giving us these nice robes, right, with the Utah Royals insignia on it. And there's this very long video, and we, we link to it in Tuesday's story, where, you know, he's like, I, I'm giving this impromptu speech. And I remember watching it on Instagram Live as it was happening, as he was showing the players the locker room for the first time. And he, he broke down in tears. And he's saying, like, I can't wait to be fined by the NWSL for giving you too many nice things. Right. So that's what we're dealing with from an NWSL point of view. But I like I can't even really speak to what his role has been in MLS as an owner. And I'm curious to see. I feel like he's just he's got such a specific like, you know, I've heard him compared to like the nice grandpa. Right. On the NWSL side. And I feel like that sort of strange <laughs> patriarchy thing is not necessarily the same on the MLS side. So I, I do kind of want to get that context from the two of you. Chris, I feel like you were maybe up close to it. So maybe you, you can start us off on that one. Yeah, it's it's an interesting dynamic for sure. And, you know, just to kind of tease our story that ran yesterday, like I've heard from multiple people that when the the future Royals got here, like they, they were blown away because they were being given things that they never dreamt of, like coming from such, I mean, if you're coming from a place like, uh, you know, the Boston Breakers and FC's Kansas City, and all of a sudden you have a, a an owner who's willing to spend a million dollars on your locker room, which is automatically a little bit better than the MLS locker room, and then, you know, help out with apartment buildings. And, you know, I've had multiple staffers tell me, like, the players broke down because they were dealing with such, you know, porous circumstances before they came to Salt Lake. But that's that's kind of a sidebar about, you know, the, 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 the grandpa analogy. Um, but, but specifically to, uh, you know, MLS, Deloitte is kind of just known as a renegade in, in the MLS circle. Like, he does things his way. He's never, he doesn't like to be controlled. He doesn't like to be told what to do. He's, um, he enjoys being the, the good guy when given the chance to do so. But I think a lot of people around Deloitte and around RSL would say that he 
would just traditionally get in his own way. And even things that he would try to do out of kindness, he would end up making awkward because um, it's like he didn't know when to stop. And I think at an MLS level, you know, multiple people have told me over the years that, you know, you had Deloitte getting involved in contract negotiations. And I don't know how prevalent that is in MLS with owners. And I think at the end of the day, Deloitte wanted to be so hands-on with all of his soccer entities that he ended up hindering everything. Because I think if Deloitte would have been able to hire people that he trusted at the soccer level, both in MLS and NWSL, and just let them do their job, I think if 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 he trusts people to be able to let them loose and just say, "Hey, go build me a team. I'll stay out of your hair," then maybe this thing would have played out differently in some aspects. But he didn't do that. He was always involved. Yeah, Paul. What's what's the sense from maybe the a more MLS perspective, like from a league perspective, what other owners think of him, like? Did, did he have kind of a rep of being like it's the Deloitte way or the <laughs> or else or? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple levels of this from the MLS side of things. And I, first, if you look at the release that both MLS and NWSL put out, they acknowledge even in the midst of these stories of an owner using racist language. They acknowledged in those statements the things that he did to move Utah soccer forward. Right. So it's weird because it's like a complicated legacy and also not. It's pretty (laughs) simple. Right. It's pretty straightforward here. Why Deloitte is selling and a reputation that existed prior to this story. Um, But he did invest in soccer, which in MLS is, you know, everyone is to a certain extent. But some of these newer owners who are coming on, their levels of investment are different. So Deloitte kind of pushed forward an idea that was still very new in MLS, which is I'm not going to necessarily invest in big name players and stars, but I am going to invest heavily in the homegrown system and I'm going to develop players. And he poured a ton of money into his academy and the training facility and into those that that was new. In MLS, And you see now other teams that have done it and done it well. FC Dallas probably stands out as one of the biggest. And even some of the new expansion clubs that have come in, Atlanta is trying to build out their academy, LAFC. But RSL is still considered up there with Philadelphia and Dallas as one of the best academies in Major League Soccer. And that was Deloitte. So when you spoke to people around MLS about Deloitte, when you start to hear these stories about his inappropriate behavior, what always struck me was an acknowledgement that they too had heard those stories followed by a discussion (laughs) about how Deloitte was still doing good work within his club. They treated him like a necessary evil. Right. Exactly. And it was like a weird thing too, where they would also acknowledge the negative of kind of how he employed coaches and GMs and executives and what his take was there, right? Like he was known for paying coaches amongst the lowest in the league you know, of constantly giving out one-year contracts and holding people to this fear that they had to perform in order to get another contract. He had an organization when he stepped in that was incredibly successful with Garth Lagerway, largely considered still the best general manager in the league, and Jason Kreiss as the soccer leaders of that organization, and both fairly quickly left after Deloitte took over as, as um, the primary owner. Well. 
Yeah, and Bill Manning as well as the was the president, and he went to Toronto. And if you look at, you know, I guess Jason Christ aside, you look at what Garth Lagerwey has done and what Bill Manning has done at Toronto and Seattle, respectively. They're the two consist two of the consistently best teams in Major League Soccer, and so there w- there is a reputation of Deloitte in the league of his leadership style being um, very different in kind of how he treats his leadership and how involved he is. Um, and kind of taking the quote-unquote cheap route in those big soccer positions followed or added to the reputation of how inappropriate he could be. Um, and I think that was the word that was used most often, right? And everyone kind of skirted around what right. the, act, the content of the actual stories. And then, you, and then the third piece, which was trumpeted the most, was, but look at the good he's done uh, with that organization. Look at the money he's put in. Look at the, the buildings he's built. Look at what he did for the NWSL team. And so, you know, that was kind of how it was always distilled. It was always distilled through that spending and that progress. Okay. All right. So I think that's the perfect setup then for kind of the final part of this, the major part of this right at the moment, which is the actual culture that Deloitte built in Utah, right? So Chris and I work on a follow-up story. Paul, you were also very much involved in this process as well. But, you know, we kept hearing the problems don't start and end with Deloitte, right? This is something much larger than him. So I also want to get into Andy Carroll, who, Chris, I would very much like to explain for you to explain to us who Andy Carroll is, because so before we, we release our story on Tuesday night. There's also a story on RSL Soapbox. And that one particularly struck a nerve with NWSL supporters because there was a very lengthy section about how Andy Carroll was making marketing decisions about NWSL players based on attractiveness, which was already things that we were hearing along those exact same lines. Um, But I, I would like for you to explain who Andy Carroll is to start, but also why... Andy Carroll is maybe the one making some of these decisions like who gets put on a billboard for Utah Royals. Yeah. So Andy Carroll was hired at RSL, uh, I believe in November of 2012 as I think he came over as a corporate partnerships um, employee and he eventually worked his way up the ladder and became chief business officer at RSL in 2015. And, um, you know, Andy was known around the club or is known around the club as um, a very intense, um, you know, numbers driven executive. And he um, he he was Deloitte's right hand man. When, when Bill left in 2015 and eventually landed in Toronto, it was clear that Andy Carroll was going to be Deloitte's right hand man at RSL. And you can tell by the culture within the club that Deloitte instilled was that Deloitte to so many people could be the bad guy. I mean, there, there are so many current and former employees that I've spoken to that say they've never had a bad interaction with Deloitte. But for the most part, most people have not had good interactions with Andy Carroll. And the, the issue, you know, issues raised in our reporting yesterday, Meg and Paul, was that there were lines crossed way too often that you could argue no chief business officer even, you know, can 
I mean, should a chief business officer be in those meetings and making those calls? If, if you're running what most of us presume to be a healthy, you know, for sports franchise, that's generally what the, the marketing and communications department is for. But as we've heard from our reporting throughout the last few days, Andy Carroll was going beyond a line so far that it was uh, pretty vile, these allegations. And I think all of us can say they're, they're unacceptable. And he was going to the lengths of saying that certain types of players on Utah Royals FC needed to be at the forefront and others shouldn't. And we've learned that was based on the way he perceived players to look. And in 2020, that just seems so counterintuitive. I mean, it's always counterintuitive, but, but if you're going to be the quote unquote uh, savior of NWSL, the way the Royals were looked at, the fact that things could have deteriorated so quickly in Utah just goes to speak to the toxicity of the culture, not only at our, not only at ourselves, but with the Royals and the Monarchs as well. Right. It's definitely, you know, and it's, it's not just the Royal side of it. I mean, we, we spoke to other employees. I mean, it, it really does seem like there's a strange tradition of terrible Christmas parties for uh, companies yeah. owned by Deloitte Hansen, just in terms of activities there. But, you know, it does seem like, and, and one of the other big pieces that I think I kept hearing in people that I spoke to was, you know, the, the people in their kind of immediate vicinity of the group, right? Like those interactions were fine, but as soon as you got to that higher level of Andy Carroll or Deloitte Hansen, right, depending on, on what their role was, that's when the problems would start <laughs> in terms of their interactions. I feel like between the workplace stuff and obviously the initial reporting in Deloitte Hansen's, um, you know, racist comments of the past, there has been reaction on both sides. I did want to bring up Becky Sauerbrunn has been one of the more vocal players. Um, she had a couple, you know, obviously Zara King really started off the NWSL side, which then kind of created this uh, effect of, she releases a couple tweets about how she views it unacceptable, and she also stands with the the players of RSL. This past weekend, the black players of the NWSL released a statement, both kind of announcing their presence to the league, but also specifically to back Zara King in her speaking out against her own owner, which is also kind of crazy that she is one of the few players who actively went for it considering that she is like a brand new rookie who legitimately got drafted in January of this year and is willing to take that on. Um, but then Becky Sauerbrunn has, has had her own reaction. And part of that is again, because of this additional reporting into Andy Carroll and his approach to the Royals. And she wrote on uh, Tuesday, anyone else sick of this narrative that a woman's success can only be defined by what a man deems valuable. It's bullshit. Our accomplishments are worthy of recognition in and of themselves. And if you can't sell excellence, can you actually sell anything? So that's kind of where the NWSL players are at. Obviously, there is another factor in here that I want to get to in a minute. But, Paul, can you maybe speak to where MLS players have been? I know, you know, Beckerman was in our, our follow-up reporting. He has publicly spoken on a, on a Zoom. But where... Where are we seeing the pushback from the RSL side right at the moment? Well, I think really what's what struck me about the two 
players I think have spoken more most vocally um, are pretty much the two players considered most tied to Real Salt Lake's identity. Um, and this idea that RSL has always been about community and family, and they've had some really consistencies there with Nick Romando and Kyle Beckerman. And those have been the two players who have come out and, and made public comments um, in which they're attempting to hold the owner accountable, hold Deloitte Hansen accountable for what he's saying and what he's done and acknowledging that the club has had to deal with um, off-the-field issues, as they put it, um, beyond just kind of trying to be competitive on the field with, with the, the soccer things that you can bring up and a lack of investment and all of that. Um, Nat Borchers is another player who was a, a, a key part of RSL who came out and spoke as well. Um, yeah, he had a Facebook statement, I think, the day the, our story dropped, if I'm not so mistaken. So that certainly I think it's, it's notable that, um, that those three players have spoken because, <laughs> because they are the ones used so often by Real Salt Lake to represent the club and who they are and what they stand for. Um, you know, there's been, I think a little bit less from the active players, but we are in this, Chris, I'll let you interject if I'm missing some things. Yeah, no, I was going to say Nedum's, Nedum's, um, you know, words last week within our story when he was willing to talk to us before we published our story on Thursday was, was really enlightening because, um, you know, Nedum Manawoha is, you know, a, a Manchester city product. He played for city before they became who they are. But I mean, he's still considered a blue over there. And in the two and a half years he's been here, he's basically outside of Beckerman become the voice of RSL from a player's perspective. And, you know, Nedham told me over the phone on Thursday that Deloitte's comments made him want to rethink everything about being in this league. And, and I think that the amount of clarity that Nedham can provide from a player's perspective um, in the moment we're living in was so huge because um, he he made clear why they didn't want to play on Wednesday. And to, to have that much of an emotional, powerful moment from a player's perspective be, you know, unfortunately translated into what so many people believe to be Thursday morning's radio appearance as um, it was, the, it was basically the, the match was struck. And I think all of us around the league who've, heard these stories over the years, as Paul mentioned, the, the match was just needed to be struck and Deloitte struck it himself with that radio appearance. So I would say from a, from a current player's perspective, Ned Amanuoha's comments throughout the last week have been um, really massive in terms of, you know, making sure that the players are represented in this conversation. And um, Deloitte sent out his own letter to the fans and season ticket holders that wasn't widely distributed last week after he took the leave of absence. And he, he dropped Nedham's name, the only name in there, as somebody that he respects and was, was sorry that he offended. So that just goes to show the amount of clout and the importance that Nedham Manawoha has to that organization. And I would right note, now. too, by the way, that they put Nedham on the radio immediately following yep. Deloy Hansen when Deloy Hansen went on to, yep. to give his apology. Now, this happened about... I think Nedham's appearance happened like 30 minutes or 40 minutes before we dropped our story. But that also, I think, indicates, yep. you know, RSL has always kind of been this franchise that finds these voices and these leaders that represent them, that they put out there and, and all of those voices. And thank you for, for 
reminding me that I was missing a pretty darn important voice, have come out and been the most vocal leaders in, in holding this franchise, this club, to be accountable. Um, and, and that this isn't appropriate and that things need to change. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, I think, so the, the thing that I want to discuss next is, obviously, Andy Williams going on the record is huge, right? Like, Deloitte strikes the match. Andy really provides the next key piece to advance the story. There's another factor here, and it's something that we've already brought up, but there is such a culture of fear, it seems like, in Utah, where there is this reaction of, I'm concerned if I say anything, there will be retaliation or retribution for me. And I think there are a couple parts to this. One is that I feel like this is a much stronger situation for women than it is for men. There is something particular about women that we speak to as we're reporting out the story. But I also think that, and this is one of the other key things that I've had in, in conversations of, as I've been reporting the story out, but also in my own sort of interactions with Deloitte Hansen is, you know, particularly for Hansen, there is this kind of mental questioning where, so one of the things that we reported about on Tuesday with, with Chris is, okay, if you had your back turned to Deloitte Hansen, he might come up behind you and start rubbing your back or grab your hand or grab your shoulders, right? And even from my own experience, this has happened to me multiple times, right? Like, I might have a higher tolerance for that, depending on, on who it is, especially, right? But, like, I think women are conditioned to tolerate a lot of these things or at least set those things aside or view them as, is this cringeworthy behavior or is this reportable behavior? And you start to question, does this add up enough for me to say something, right? So you add yeah. in that, is it enough for me to say something, even if it's uncomfortable or unsettling or it crosses a line for you, right? Do you tolerate it? Plus, then adding in that element of there is fear that if I say something, there will be consequences for me. I feel like that is such a recipe for disaster. And I'm just curious, obviously, the, the two of you have talked to many people as well, if there is that sense kind of across the board of, you know, again, Paul, you were talking about like, there's always this recognition of Deloitte's investment into the game, right? Like, what do we tolerate <laughs> in order for progress? So what, did, what, Paul, what have you kind of heard on this fear of retribution from? Well, I think there's a few different angles to this. First, I think there was, we heard a lot of the excuse of, oh, well, he's just kind of old school and he doesn't understand that that's not appropriate anymore, right? Like, it's just, yeah, it's just, you got to brush it aside because of that. And, and I think that happened with a lot of people. But I think when you look at this story with Real Salt Lake happening in parallel to a story that's unfolded through the Washington Post reporting of the Washington football team, you know, both of these organizations um, had a culture where women were afraid to come forward. And I think part of it is, you know, does it reach that point? But the other part is, if you don't think you're going to be heard, and you don't think you have somebody who's going to listen and support you and affect change, then of course, those fears are going to be amplified. And that, that 
mark that you hit of this needs to be reported and moved up the chain starts to get taller and taller and taller where you're willing to tolerate more because you don't feel like you have anyone there to support you. And I think it's directly tied to the fact that in both of those organizations, this behavior stemmed from a culture set by the owner. And when the owner is setting a culture that allows executives to feel comfortable doing things that are inappropriate, and there's a a reporting chain that leads to those people who have set your culture, how can anyone feel like they have somewhere to go? And I think what this indicates at Real Salt Lake especially is that Major League Soccer needs to put into place some kind of system that gives people a safe place to report issues in the workplace at their club, especially if those issues directly involve C-level executives and owners. And, yeah. and I think that when you talk to the people that we spoke to, both this week in our reporting and months ago when I first started making phone calls about this, you know, that was a constant theme is like the American soccer world is a small one. And if people want to stay employed, they felt like they had to stay quiet. And that has to change. And it has to change beyond just Real Salt Lake. It has to change at a league level to make people know that they have somewhere to go when they feel wronged and when inappropriate behavior is going on. Yeah, and we have so many issues in professional sports that we have to work through. But this, you know, machismo workplace culture is among the most toxic that there is. And it, based on our reporting, the amount of misogyny and the sexist remarks that employees had to deal with there is so rampant that um, it, 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 is, it is so unfortunate because like you both said, there is a, an exceptional level of fear among employees because so many of them have told us that, that they even went to the HR department and nothing ever happened. So if you go to the department that's basically sole designation is to help you and nothing happens, how, would, how does that make you feel as an employee? How does that affect your, your overall happiness? How does that affect the way you work on a day-to-day basis? You're always looking over your shoulder and literally, no point, like no pun intended, unfortunately, like for so many employees, it was, were they being objectified for the way they look or dress? A lot of them, yes. Were players objectified for the way they look or dress? Yes. And that, those two in of itself, I mean, this sounds awful, but there, there are so many layers to this thing that we still have to try to uncover that we are unfortunately... I think still just below the surface. Yeah, it, it really does. I mean, we use the the turn of phrase like tip of the iceberg in the article, but that really does feel like we are just kind of at the start of this. And also that, again, on the NWSL side of things as well, right? Like there is, we just keep telling the same stories on the NWSL side. Like we live through Magic Jack. <laughs> we live through Magic Jack. We live through FC Kansas City. And now we're living through Utah again, and it, it's still the same fundamental problems, which is we rely on essentially rich white men to pay for women's soccer and to fund women's soccer. And how much do you tolerate in order for them to 
fund a league or a team. Paul? Meg, we talked about this the other day. I think there is also this attitude that permeates women's sports and women in sports of like, we're doing you a favor, right? That we're doing you a favor by investing in your league and your team. We're doing you a favor by employing you in professional sports and what a blessing you have to be a part of this men's world. And, you know, I think that that leads to some of these behaviors and the justification certainly for some of it. And this idea of, you know, dealing with the negatives to get the positives. And that doesn't have to be the case. And that's something that needs to really start to change. Um, You know, and hopefully things like this kind of set the tone to say, this isn't okay. And this isn't going to be tolerated any longer. But I, I certainly believe it's a part of the culture of professional sports still in this country, and maybe not even just in this country. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the most heartbreaking thing, too, is that for me, the juxtaposition of talking to former staffers and hearing them relay the elation that players had when they first got here. Um, to And, you know, this is maybe me putting words in their mouth, but maybe they thought like, this is, this one's going to be different. Okay. Maybe this is going to be different. Maybe we finally made it to a club that's going to treat us equally and fairly and give us the resources to be successful. And I, I think some could make the argument that the resources were given, but everything else, I think not at this point. And I, I look at it from a broader perspective too. Like, how how does this help the game both locally and nationally? It doesn't. It hinders it. How how are parents who are season ticket holders to Royals games going to be able to relay to their kids what happened? You know, that's that's the way I think of it. Like I I wanted to take my niece to a Royals game last year, and like we didn't get to go, but I've been thinking about that a lot too. It's like how am I gonna how am I gonna relate to my seven year old niece who maybe wanted to go see Kristen Press or Kelly O'Hare, why they're not there. Like, do I tell her the, do I, do I break it down? Do I have to make it real? I mean, I'm not to get super like, you know, macro on you, on you, but like, that's the way I've, I've, I think about this because the, the savior complex that, that we've heard Deloitte Hansen has, um, there, I think some could argue that there are some positive pieces to it, but the way that everything is played out it's just so unfortunate because you both know that when Deloitte came into the league in in twenty in late twenty seventeen, I think everybody involved thought that that this owner was going to help change the narrative, and it turns out in less than three years, here we are. Yeah. No. Absolutely. All right. So what what comes next? Right. Like obviously we are still reporting, but in terms of. Paul, can you fill us in on where the MLS investigation is at? I know that you you spoke with MLS last night. Obviously, they released a statement as well. But what what comes next from an MLS point of view when it comes to the investigation itself? Well, MLS has hired an outside firm, a New York law firm that's gone down to Salt Lake or is going down to Salt Lake to interview people as part of this investigation. You know, they the league wouldn't go into detail about what that investigation will entail, other than that it is investigating. And this was, I think, notable that the, the, the line moved on what the investigation was between the initial report on Thursday and uh, the follow-up reports specifically about Andy Carroll on Monday and Tuesday 
um, that the, the investigation now envelops the culture at Real Salt Lake and the leadership of Deloy Hansen and Andy Carroll. And I think the fact that the net is cast that wide is a really good sign that MLS is acknowledging that this goes beyond, as we wrote, as you guys wrote in the story yesterday, you know, beyond just Deloy Hansen. And that if you were to focus just on Deloy Hansen, especially as he's selling the club, then you would be doing the bare minimum needed to, um, to root out the issues in Salt Lake, um, both on the RSL level and beyond. And, and I would expect the NWSL, um, I believe they, they made a similar announcement in kind of changing the scope of the investigation. Right, right. No, they, they confirmed to me that it's really the entire organization at this point. Um, I, I did receive their version of the statement, but it basically said, obviously, we're trying to investigate the facts behind the allegations. But more important, I think, on, on this front is the part of the statement that reads, to help us identify steps that need to be taken at the club and or league level to ensure safe and supportive working conditions are the norm in the NWSL. And, you know, we, we spoke about needing mechanisms on the MLS side. I mean, absolutely needing mechanisms on the NWSL side in terms of there really is not necessarily a reporting structure for players right at the moment. Um, I, I think that that is going to be absolutely a follow-up story in terms of like what the actual protocols are from a from an NWSL point of view because from my understanding of things, we should all be deeply concerned on that front. But again, where MLS is in a very different staffing uh, point of view than MLS is in a very different resource point of view than than other leagues. So there are challenges on this front, but at this point we, I think we've seen enough now over the past decade plus to know that you're going to have to have mechanisms to report these things. All right, Chris, one more, one more before we uh, go here in terms of actually selling this team, what's next on that front? Yeah. So um, all of us have been, you know, putting out feelers throughout the last few days to try to gauge where, what the market is. And um, multiple people have told us that Utah soccer will be sold as an entire entity, meaning Real Salt Lake, Utah Royals FC, Real Monarchs, the stadium, the, the soccer campus, the training facility, everything. And um, we've been told that the Larry H. Miller Group, which owns and runs the Utah Jazz here in town, are showing interest. And we've also seen, uh, I don't want to say random interest, but you have a NFL superstar in JJ Watt, who's, whose wife grew up, um, Kelia grew up a mile from Rio Tinto Stadium. I think she played in her championship, uh, high school championship soccer game there. Um, so he's been to games before at Rio Tinto, and he came out on Twitter more than a few times and said that he's interested in buying into the NWSL mechanism side of it. I don't know how that would necessarily work out. We've also had Josie Altidore mention that he has a group that's interested in, in buying the, the team as well. Um, there's also a lo another local billionaire named Ryan Smith who owns a software company called Qualtrics that is a huge sponsor of the Utah Jazz that has shown interest as well. Um, I, this thing's going to take a long time to figure out. I know that Deloitte wants to get this thing done as soon as possible, but when you have so many different entities, you know, under one umbrella and you're going to want your price point to be met, I, I know Deloitte will probably end up taking a loss on this, but 
I, knowing um, the businessman that he is, he wants to be able to get as much as he's put back into these clubs. All right, Paul, any, any final thoughts before we sign off and go back to our, our normal lives of <laughs> being on the phone all the time? I was going to say, don't say normal and stop there because you're going to jinx us. Um, no, I think, I, you know, I think one, one thing you said earlier I'd really like to note, and, and it holds us accountable that we're saying it here on the podcast, but, you know, there's a lot of work left to do on this story um, about what comes next, uh, not just who buys the team. That's not going to be enough to fix the culture. Um, it's what are the leagues doing to get better, um, what could have been done, you know, regarding when, when Deloitte Hanson was brought in as an owner, both in Major League Soccer and NWSL, what was known, um, and, and potentially to be, again, available for people who want to tell their stories, um, because I think that's really important too. So, you know, I, I think this is just the beginning. It's been a very active beginning, um, but there's more, more to do and more to, uh, to report. All right. Well, I think that's, that's a good promise. Uh, to leave us on thank you both to taking the time today i know having lived through it myself we were we were in a google meeting last night for like you know almost four hours trying to get that that story across the line and making sure that we were we were set and ready so the hours on this have definitely been interesting i mean i was legitimately in the woods on sunday when the deloy announcement came through so i think we've all kind of had some real fun um, trying to navigate this and and what we are usually trying to spend time on. But again, thank you both. And, uh, you know, I'll talk to you on Slack in like 10 minutes, probably. Thanks, Meg. Thanks, Meg. Thank you to Chris and Paul for joining me today. For even more on the Utah front, you can check out the most recent episode of Allocation Disorder, also available via our athletic podcast feeds. Now, obviously, we're following the story and continuing to cover it, especially with the investigation still underway and a sale very much in the works for RSL, the Royals, and the Monarchs, along with everything else wrapped up in Utah soccer via Hansen's ownership. All of those links, again, to our coverage are in the episode description for you. One more thing for you. I mean, it, it does really feel hard for me to wrap my brain around this, but it is time to get back to watching soccer this weekend. So enjoy the games. That's it for this week's episode of Full Time with Meg Linehan. If you don't already subscribe to this podcast, you can do that at all of the usual places, including Apple, Spotify, and The Athletic itself. As always, I ask you for your ratings and reviews, particularly on Apple. These help us tremendously, again, for finding new listeners, for uh, knowing that you're enjoying the show. I read all of them, and I appreciate it when you take that extra step to let us know how we are doing over here. Um, if you don't already subscribe to The Athletic, uh, for all the rest of our coverage, obviously it is more than just soccer. It is every <laughs> possible uh, professional league in the United States at this point. But again, WNBA coverage and more. Uh, I've got 40% off your new annual subscription for you just for listening to this podcast at theathletic.com slash full time. You can find me on Twitter at It's Meg Linehan. Our podcast producer is Michael Zimmerman. From The Athletic, I'm Meg Linehan. Thanks for listening.